the heritage breed is very much like a wild turkey in that it likes to nest in the woods. It likes to form its own nest in, you know, a natural environment. The, the heritage breed has kind of a mind of their own. Hello, welcome to The Corner Table, a Capital Times podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin. I am your host, Lindsay Christians, food and arts writer here at The Cap Times. We are just a couple weeks out from arguably the biggest food holiday of the year in this country, so this week on the podcast we're talking about the newest, oldest thing in Thanksgiving turkey. Unlike the big-breasted Barbie birds in the freezer at the grocery store, heritage turkeys are closer to wild birds. They forage for themselves and they can fly. Maria Davis and Chris Holman run Nami Moon Farms in Custer, Wisconsin, about 12 miles east of Stevens Point. The farm name might be familiar to you if you eat out in Madison a lot because they sell to restaurants like Gotham Bagels, Bradbury's, Four Quarter, Oliver's Public House, among many others. Dan Bonanno over at Pig in a Fur Coat makes his signature duck egg ravioli with Nami Moon Farms egg yolks. And Underground Food Collective, including Underground Butcher, works with their poultry. They're also at the Dane County Farmer's Market, and I've seen them at the East Side Market. When I called Maria the other day, she said Nami Moon started raising heritage turkeys because people were asking for them, and they were willing to pay for it. We just finished up our ninth season of farming. Um, Chris and I are both first-generation farmers. Um, my parents had the land, but we always, um, growing up, rented it out to our local dairy farmers, who are amazing in our community. But um, you know, after he was pursuing his PhD and I had graduated and was working down in Madison for some time, we both were ready to um, take a different course in life. And so uh, becoming poultry farmers was sort of the thing that inspired us the most um, and kind of seemed to be the easiest thing to pursue as we kind of lived a double life of both in central Wisconsin and also in Madison. So, um, yeah, we just are wrapping up our ninth season. So next year will be a decade in which we've been farming, which is pretty amazing. So were was anybody raising chickens um, or other poultry on the land before you got involved with it, or was it still rented out to dairy farmers? Yeah, so we were still renting it out to dairy farmers and um, – Actually, when I was in college still, we went out to Dream Farm, uh, which is in Cross Plains, and Diana was kind of one of the biggest inspirations to farming um, to me, and uh, we helped them build a chicken coop, and I remember calling my father um, at the time and saying, hey, we need to do this. We need to get chickens on our property and be doing this because we're not using our land enough, and so that summer after I had graduated, I would go up on the weekends and help him. And we built our chicken coop and my parents raised 50 chickens. And it was one of the most amazing and also hardest experiences for them because none of us had ever farmed <laughs> growing up. So um, the minute we butchered all 50 of them, we grew very attached to them and could not eat them for about four months. So they just sat in our freezer. Oh, no. and we totally went against the whole, you know, idea of why are we trying to grow our food in the first place and not eating our own animals. Um, but once we kicked, once we cooked the first one, it became a little easier. And over the years, um, you know, since we started our farm, uh, we raised 
couple thousand birds each year. So obviously it's much more difficult for us to grow in an attachment to them. But um, yeah, uh, that's kind of our first, you know, experience with poultry with those first 50 birds. And it's definitely one we'll never forget. So you talked about using the land better. What else attracted you to poultry? Why do you like chickens? Um, you know, honestly, it wasn't something uh, that we had a huge desire to do when we were initiating our farm and, and starting to develop a business plan. And, and what did the future of that look like? Um Chickens were something that, you know, if you had enough infrastructure at a low expense, uh, you could feed them probably every other day or every two days. And we set up our farm so that we had automatic watering systems and everything. And it just seemed like one of the easiest things as far as, you know, infrastructure setup and also not having to necessarily deal with a large animal because, Poultry at the time seemed like a very easy step of getting our toes wet into the agriculture world. So that's why we started there. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that one of the major challenges with chickens, especially when they're smaller but at any age, is that everything else also likes to eat them. Like we like to eat them, but so does everything else. And so they can be kind of hard to protect. Yeah. So, um, you know, for our operation, we keep them in our barn. So we actually receive our chickens um, through the postal service. We do a breed or we raise a breed from uh, Pennsylvania. They're one of the only only hatcheries um, that's breeding out this stock. So it's called a Freedom Ranger, also known more commonly in the egg world as a red bro chicken. And so it originates from France. And so our chickens come in the mail and we raise them in our um, brooder, which is essentially an insulated barn. And um, you have to keep conditions, you know, very particular to avoid disease and any kind of issues that could essentially take out your flock. So uh, we always have to try and keep dry bedding. So we use pine shavings. And we keep our birds in our barn for about four to six weeks, depending on which time of the year it is. So in the spring, we tend to keep them in a little bit longer uh, just because, you know, weather conditions in Wisconsin are always unpredictable. So um, in the past, you know, we we made the uh, mistake of taking out our birds a little too early and putting them out on pasture. And then a week later, we got, you know, a foot and a half of snow and we were so fearful that whole night we didn't sleep because we were so worried that they would get snowed in and um, wouldn't be able to survive. But so, yeah, once we get them outside, though, um, it's kind of fair game for all predators, you know, that exist, whether it's land or air predators. So um, on our farm, our biggest issue is typically coyotes as well as um, owls. The hawks, we don't have so much of an issue with because we do actually have um, we have four employees on our farm, three of which are dogs. And so uh, one of them is a Border Collie Australian Shepherd. So she's kind of like our day protector in the sense that uh, she she runs the farm, you know, pretty much all day. And she makes sure that everything is in place in the sense that if any chickens are outside the fence, she, you know, will get them back in. And it's typically she'll just keep chasing them until they fly over the fence. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. And so she does that. And then we have two um, large livestock guardian dogs, which mostly are nocturnal. And so they help protect uh, from predation at night. And, you know, they're, they're an interesting breed because, you know, their natural instinct is to protect, um, but they're also wanderers. So we always sometimes wake up in the morning and have to go find them at our neighbor's house. <laughs> they do a really good job for us. You know, the coyotes have stayed at bay over the years, mostly because of them. And, um, and the owls don't come as much. And the owls typically are heavier in predation in the early spring, you know, because they're trying to feed um, their babies. And so they're needing a high amount of protein and fat in order to get their babies fed. But come, you know, mid-July through usually October, things kind of calm down a little bit out there. And then we get another hard push of predation uh, come early fall you know, because everything's trying to fatten up and store up food for the year or for the winter. So um, we've kind of adjusted our farming schedule actually over the years to kind of avoid both of those hardening pressure points of predation, um, mostly because some of it's completely out of our control. The Mother Nature is a larger force than we give her credit to be sometimes. So um, yeah, we have to just, you know, kind of play that game and with the way in which we raise our birds, uh, we want them to have as much um, exposure to the natural environment as possible. So they are completely um, free range. Uh, we do offer some rain shelters and shade shelters, which are the, um, two of the same. But the poultry fence that we use is solar powered, and it's mostly just to keep things from getting in. Um, chickens by nature want to stay flocked together. Um, they don't like to leave their buddies too much. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so you raise other, other animals other than just chickens, right? I feel like I've seen a lot of Nami Moon duck eggs and, um, you do heritage turkeys, right? Yeah. So, um, in the past we've raised, uh, ducks for both eggs and meat. Um, we pretty much have eliminated the meat mostly because of restrictions with butchering in our state. It's very limited right now. Um, but we also raise turkeys and we do offer and raise two different types of turkeys. Uh, we do the more traditional broad-breasted breed. Um, we do a bronze bird of that variety. And then uh, nine years ago, we kind of dabbled with the heritage breed as well. And that's a little bit more uncommon, although it is becoming more common, which is really great. Um, and that breed is more, the way I describe it to my customers is I tell people it's more like a wild bird. Um, the stature of the bird and the characteristics of how that bird, you know, eats and flies is very traditional to that of a wild bird. So the biggest difference between the two turkey breeds that we raise is the bronze is bred to grow a little bit faster and, um, and it doesn't have the characteristics of a heritage breed where it can fly. So uh, <laughs> what we typically describe on our farm is that they bulldoze our fence a lot and we call them bowling balls. <laughs> and so, nice. um, you know, when the grasshopper, the grass, the grasshoppers are on the other side of the fence or the grass is a little greener on the other fence, they have no shame or hesitation to just plow over our um, temporary solar 
powered fence and go get it. So um, that's always a challenge as they get bigger and bigger um, right before butcher. But, you know, the heritage breed is much smarter in the sense that they just jump the fence because they can fly and, um, and they're just better natural foragers too. Um, you know, they, they like to perch up higher because they have that ability to fly. And, um, one of our biggest challenges is that they like to perch in our trees. So, um, that's always been kind of something that we have to figure out as far as when it comes to butcher, how to get them before they fly in the trees. But that's actually the tree story is how we even got into them. Um, so our first year, we wanted to dabble with heritage turkeys and we bought them from a hatchery and they were super expensive. Um, but you know, the market started demanding that. And so that's actually how we got into them. And when it came time to butcher them, um, we went to go capture them at night. And as we started catching them, they all started flying up in trees and we're just like, well, how the hell do we get them down to take them in to get them butchered? And so, um, the next morning before we went to go take them to the butcher, some of them flown down. Um, some of them were like, no, we're not coming down. We know what you're doing. And so that's actually how we started getting into breeding out our own birds is by mistake. We ended up with a few towards the end of the season. And so we just decided to overwinter, overwinter them. And we just started breeding them out on our own. So, um, yeah, it's been kind of a fun experience in that sense. That's really funny. Did you eventually, it sounds like you got most of them that first year, right? Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, we, oddly enough, ended up with exactly one Tom and four male, or four females. The farming gods were definitely in our favor in that because, you know, Toms are very territorial when it comes to establishing their hen flock. And so um, the fact that we only ended up with one Tom was, pretty much in our favor that first year. So we felt like it was, you know, the farming gods saying good job this first year. You guys didn't totally screw up. So <laughs> we felt pretty good about that. What's the name of the breed? We have a couple different breeds on our farm. Um, and we've done a couple different breeds over the years. So the first year um, we did Narragansett and uh, this red breed. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but um, we did those two first breeds. And of the two, we liked the Narragansett way better. Um, we ended up by, I think it was our third year, introducing a new breed, um, which is actually on the endangered heritage list. Um, it's called a midget white, and it actually has a pretty fun story in the sense that uh, the breed was actually created at UW-Madison, which is my alma mater. So that's been kind of our, our most fun project on our farm, we like to call it. Um, we feel like, you know, we're helping create this breed and, and have its genetics exist. And so we've kept midget whites now for several years, six years. And so we keep those two breeds now um, on our farm. And uh, the thing about heritage breeds is so they have a very small uh, window in which they lay eggs. And it's very early in the spring. So um, we invested in a really nice incubator box. And so now we hatch out all of our own heritage turkeys on the farm. So right now we have one Tom and about eight females. And that keeps him very active in the spring. And uh, he breeds with about four Narragansetts and four Midget Whites. 
And then we have the fun chore of going and finding where these hens are laying their eggs. Um, we try we try and keep them somewhat in one area, but like I've described, uh, the heritage breed is very much like a wild turkey in that it likes to nest in the woods. It likes to form its own nest in you know a natural environment versus say like a nesting box in which we try to provide the rest of our um, hens. The the heritage breed has kind of a mind of their own. So uh, once we find and establish their nest. Um, we're able to go and collect those eggs daily. So we hatch them all out ourselves. And uh, it's kind of a mixed bag as far as what we hatch out. And that's what's kind of fun right now is that, you know, some of the birds, if they're breeding with, you know, the Narragansett tom, the midget white hens are really beautiful in the sense that they have a very full white body. And then the wing tips and their tail tips have um, kind of that dark coloration of, a Narragansett turkey. So they end up looking really beautiful. And when a lot of people come to our farm, they're just like, wow, I've never seen a turkey look like that. <laughs> We're like, neither have we. So um, it's, it's kind of a fun thing to experiment with. But, you know, the whole heritage market is really fun. And I, I think it really picked up steam once, you know, heritage pork started becoming um more prevalent amongst restaurants, you know, in like the Chicago and Madison market. And, you know, the same can be said for turkeys now too. So like in the pork market, you have different varieties of breeds that either, you know, are more of a lard pig. Um, and that's what chefs are wanting to go after. And the same can be said for turkeys too now in the sense that, you know, the traditional broad-breasted turkeys that we raise um, a lot of them, they have really great flavor. I And it's honestly still one of our biggest sellers, mostly because, you know, people have large gatherings and they need a larger turkey. So broad-breasted turkeys are kind of um, the best suited towards that, that kind of family experience. Uh, but the heritage birds, they have a different flavor in the sense that I like to say it's more in-depth. Um, it's more of a wild uh flavor in what you would say you'd get more like a lamb. Um, it has a little bit more of a gamier flavor, but the depth of the flavor is just amazing. And so I think people are starting to appreciate that more in the poultry world in the sense that, you know, they don't want your just conventional breed and they want something that has a more unique flavor, a more unique taste to it. Um, as they're experiencing, you know, that holiday tradition with their family. So do you give people advice on how to cook them maybe a little bit differently than you would, say, a traditional butterball or something that people are used to from the store? Uh, we always recommend doing some kind of brine, whether it's a dry or wet brine. We've done both, um, and we appreciate both of them. I don't think there's too much of a difference, although I'm not a chef, so <laughs> maybe the chefs would say something different. But uh, with a heritage turkey, because they don't develop as much fat as a broad-breasted uh, breed does, I always tell people to do just a little bit of a lower and slower um, cooking approach to it, just to allow that bird to maintain its moisture more and not um, dry out by any means. And that's actually what's kind of nice about a heritage breed is that because it has more dark meat throughout the whole bird, the tendency of it to dry out is far more um, infrequently than, say, a broad-breasted bronze. So in general, um, my approach 
especially with turkey, is to go a few degrees less than you would with a broad-breasted. But any kind of animal in which is raised out, you know, on pasture and has a more diverse diet because it tends to be more lean, I always tell people to make sure that they do cook it lower and slower just to make sure that they don't overcook it. Have you been breeding more heritage turkeys each year as the appetite for them sort of grows? Like, have you noticed an an increase or a maintenance of like a higher level of interest in these birds? Yeah. In general, I would say there's more and more interest each year, Um, mostly because I think, you know, people are really into cooking shows and uh, finding these articles whether it be through the New York Times or something, where everybody is talking about heritage turkeys. I think it's more of a common term in more culinary-focused areas. And so I would say, in general, people are definitely seeking it out more, and they're demanding it more, too. Um, The price difference between the two is, for our farm in particular, is significant. You know, so a broad-breasted broad, we sell for four fifty and a heritage turkey we sell for almost seven dollars a pound. Um and people are willing to pay it, you know, they don't blink an eye at that because they know that that flavor is that much better. So as far as demand goes, definitely. And it's it's forced us over the years to figure out our production so that we can manage um and, and be able to meet that demand. What do you think is the biggest misconception about heritage turkeys? What do you think that most people don't know about these birds? So everybody is so used to buying these large, you know, turkeys because, you know, profitability is in the bigger animal. And so breeds um, have been bred to be bigger in a shorter period of time. So when someone comes to order a heritage turkey, they automatically think that they can get that 25-pound turkey out of the heritage breed. But unfortunately, that's not what's going to happen um, because, like I said before, they mimic more of like a wild turkey. And wild turkeys, frankly, just don't get that big, mostly because they have to forage for everything and they don't have supplemental feed like farmers will supply them. But um, I always have to con- I always have to tell people, you know, Yes, you can get a heritage turkey, but unfortunately, you can't get your large 20-pound turkey to feed your family of 15. Um, So I always have to remind people, you know, the largest our turkeys typically get for a heritage breed is about 14 pounds. So you have to beef up the sides in which you're going to prepare for your big holiday meal. So I would say that's by far the um, the biggest thing that people don't understand about heritage breeds in general. Do you do a heritage turkey on your own Thanksgiving table? We typically do. Um, It's just our in-house favorite. And we typically take the smaller ones so that we can prepare them two ways. So we like to do a fried turkey and then just a traditional oven roasted turkey. Um, So yeah, that's usually what we'll be eating at Thanksgiving. Well, thank you so much for for chatting with me today. This all sounds great. Thank you so much, Lindsay. This has been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by The Capital Times. Our music was composed by Patrick Christians, and we get editing help from Eric Lawrenson. Find more food and drink news at captimes.com and follow us on Facebook at Corner Table Podcast. 
If you want to learn more about how to cook heritage turkey, I would suggest looking first to the New York Times cooking app. Melissa Clark, in particular, is a great resource for that. She was a big help to me the first time I did it. You can follow Corner Table on Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, lots of other places. Subscribe wherever you listen. I am your host, Cap Times food writer Lindsay Christians. My wish for you this week is duck egg ravioli. It's a pig in a fur coat, and it is awesome. Cheers! Thank you.